Are we so busy that we don't see the works of God right in our midst? Can we dazzle each other with how great God is? Do our children and others know how we were saved? Do our children and others know our answers to prayer? And do we remember them? Today on the Song Time broadcast, we're continuing our Summer Psalm series. This message from my friend, Chap Bettis, will talk about Psalm 78 as we discuss how important it is for us to disciple the next generation as we have been entrusted with the gospel to pass down to them. Stay tuned for that message. You won't want to miss it. But first, do you know how to answer the questions being raised about the authority and the authenticity of our Bible? We'll be joined once again by Bill Mounts as we hear the many voices coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. All week long, we've been joined by William D. Mounts. He's the author of a new book called Why I Trust the Bible, Answers to Real Questions and Doubts that People Have About the Authenticity and the Authority of the Bible. This is a great resource and one that we want to share with you as a result of this conversation. So find out more information by giving us a call. It's 508-362-7070. And as we've been talking about this, Bill has been explaining that this is a sort of a conversation that we have every 10 years. It seems to rise to the surface again as people bring old questions back up and and raise this idea that the Bible isn't trustworthy. But Bill, this is, as you mentioned, such a, a cyclical problem in our culture today, and yet one that has been answered time and time again. And so I have to ask the question, has there ever been an, any other book in history or in present time that has been more analyzed and scrutinized? than the Bible? Um, no, I think Darwin's book may be second, <laughs> you know, in the species, but it's, uh, no, it's, it's, they don't even put the Bible on New York Times bestseller list because it's been number one forever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, yeah. So a book that's been so analyzed and so scrutinized throughout the years, it seems kind of weird that these this problem that you mentioned keeps happening every 10 years of these questions that have been drudged up and answered so many different times. Yeah. And, you know, just, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is strange. I don't know. I still remember when I was in seminary in Pasadena, I walked out of school and I was just going down the main street and I went around the corner to a bookstore and there was this giant poster the books the church left out of the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's just, it was, I wish I'd taken a picture of it because it'd be such a great illustration of how this thing just cycles through. Mm. So there's um, actually until Bart Ehrman, there's been nothing new under the sun. Uh, yeah. That's part of his, he's such a good textual critic and he's such a good communicator that it's a whole new level of attack. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, maybe you could frame it as a way to get into some of the content in your book. You can frame uh, uh, Bart Ehrman's kind of uh, history and his attacks so our listeners can be familiar with it and why they need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, I've never met him. Um, ben Wallace is a good friend of mine, and he's had quite a few debates with them, so my knowledge is secondhand. I've been told he's a really nice guy. Um, he's fun to be with. Uh, he is a consummate debater he is i've watched the youtube debates and he is so good at looking just the mechanics looking at the people the hand gestures the the intonations um, the the amount of data that's in his mind Um, he's a phenomenal debater 
And he's also a premier text critic. He, when it comes to text criticism, he knows what he's talking about. And so um, he's a professor, he said the religion department at, in, in North Carolina. I forget which the schools. Um, and so his arguments, what are the arguments that he's raising that need to be addressed and why you kind of wrote this book to address those questions? Well, yeah, jumping to the discussion on text criticism, um, there's a lot. He says that, uh, and this is an old, old teaching in the uh, in liberal academy, that there were lots of different orthodoxies. Uh, a lot of different people believe contradictory things. And the books that we have uh, in our New Testament were the ones that kind of won the debate. Um, and so... It's not really what was being taught. And, you know, everyone always likes to pit uh, Paul against Peter kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so that's that's part of it. Uh, he has views of scribes that I don't think match the facts. Uh, but the scribes, he says, were sloppy. They were biased. They interjected their own ideas. Um, and so the textual, the, the texts that went through, especially the first 400 years, are so full of mistakes uh, he says there are there are there are about 400 thought if you, if you look at all the Greek manuscripts and there's over five about 5500 of them that uh, there are over 400,000 differences and that makes and his famous line is that um, there are more mistakes than there are words there's 138,000 words in the New Testament and so you can't you, we just don't know what the words of Jesus were uh, he would argue. And he's, his other famous line is that we don't have copies of the copies of the copies of the copies of the original. So the idea is that there have been so many copies made with so many changes, intentionally and unintentionally made, that we can't trust what we have. That's his, that's his basic approach to the issue. Hmm. So then your answer to that, I mean, obviously one of them is why do we have these 27 books of the New Testament? Uh, that's one of the questions you're answering. Why is it that we have these books and not other books? Why aren't the Gnostic Gospels in there and the, the Apocrypha? Yeah, he, um, when an issue comes to canonicity, I really encourage people to read Michael Kruger's stuff. It's just mm-hmm. superb. Uh, he's the president of uh, RTS in Charlotte. I think it's Charlotte. The issue of canon is an interesting canon. The, 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 the myth is that a few individuals uh, at Nicaea, you know, made up the list. Mm-hmm. And it's completely not true. Uh, Nicaea never discussed the canon at all. But you got, uh, you know, Da Vinci Code and other people making up silly stuff that has no basis in fact. And people, people believe it partially because they want to believe it. But when you, when you look at the canon and the creation of the canon, and, and Michael has three different definitions for the canon, but basically um, the argument is that on 22 of the 27 were accepted instantly as authoritative, and there never was a question about them. There never was a question about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Never was a question about Acts, uh, Paul's writings. Um, questions came about Revelation, came later, but people recognized because of who wrote them for the most part, that the books carried the apostles' authority, the apostles carried Jesus' authority, and the books were accepted right away. Um, 
So we had this basic canon, this basic orthodoxy that that everyone says it, it just simply wasn't an issue. There are a few of the books that people raised their eyebrows about. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Second Peter's Greek is different than First Peter. Second and Third John weren't widely distributed. Things like that. Uh, James appears to contradict Paul on justification. So there were there were some of these books that they were questions for a hundred years or so, but the vast majority of books were set very, very quickly. And, and that's really important. If it took the church 300 years to decide what books they believed were from God. And at the canon, the church didn't create the canon. The church recognized the divine authority in the books. That's a really important point. Mm. If it really took 300 years to recognize that, then you'd be scratching your head and go, well, I wonder, I wonder if they got it right. But they accepted it instantly. Uh, in terms of the books that are left out, I always want to ask people, you know, what books do you want? And like I said earlier, well, the main one is Gospel of Thomas. And I just say, have you read the Gospel of Thomas? And I've, to date, I've never had anyone say they've read it. I'm sure people have. But it's a collection of 114 sayings. And the last saying is that Mary can't go to heaven until Jesus turns her into a man. <laughs> And when you when when I, when I speak on that, I just put the 114 saying up on the overhead, just wait for the laughter. Um, and you just you just can't read these things and think that in any way they agree with the message of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. So on the books that were left out, that's about the only one that's stated. There's a you know the Didache and um, you know a few of these other little books that the church actually thought about, and, but they recognized that they were a little different. Hmm. Um, so anyway, so the, the answer is the vast majority of the books were accepted instantly. There was no question about them, primarily based on authorship. And the books that weren't accepted, for the most part, all I had to do was read them. Even the Didache, which is, you know, maybe end of first century, beginning of second. You read it, and it's good, it's helpful. Shepherd Hermas, it's good, it's helpful. But you can just feel the difference between them and an authoritative book. We've been talking with Bill Mounts about this very important book that he's written called Why I Trust the Bible, Answers to Real Questions and Doubts People Have About the Bible. This is something that your kids are probably familiar with, with the internet and with YouTube and all of these resources available. Your kids have probably heard them amongst their friends. They're certainly going to hear them at Secular University if they're going to the university in the fall. It's a great resource. It's a great conversation. You need to be plugged in. And you, again, are the primary resource for your child. So make sure that you are well informed This book was written for you and your children. So give us a call, 508-362-7070, or head over to our website at songtime.com. But speaking about how you are the primary resource for your children for the sake of the gospel, then today's conversation, as we continue our study in the Summer Psalm series, we look to Psalm 78. Here is a psalm reminding us that it's our duty, our responsibility to disciple those who come behind us, to train up the next generation, to point them to Christ, to tell them the stories and the wonders and the works that God has done. In this message from my good friend, Chap Pettis, we'll look at Psalm 78 and be encouraged and challenged to, to know what to share and how to share it with those who come behind us. Here is Chap Pettis. What's, what's the scripture saying? God commands us that we're to tell the next generation But actually, there's application as well, just to speak to each other. But speak to each other about what? Well, that's what verses back to 4 and 5 we can look at. We're to tell the next generation and really speak to each other about the works of God 
and the word of God. Look in verses 4 and 5. We must not hide them from their children, but must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord, his might, the wonderful works he has performed. He has established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. In that first part of the passage, the psalmist is thinking about Israel's history. And he can look back, really, this is our, what we would call our Old Testament. He can look back and be amazed at what God has done. He had delivered. Think about, if you, if you just think of the, the miracle of the Old Testament. What God had done is taken his people down, 70 people, down to the nation of, of uh, Egypt. And in 400 years had multiplied them into 2 million. Then he miraculously brings them out of a superpower, Egypt walks them through the Red Sea. The Red Sea destroys the superpower of its day. Then he feeds them in the wilderness. Two million people feeds the, gives them water, gives them food, leads them into the promised land, and establishes them there. The psalmist can look back and say, God is amazing to his people. And in fact, we proclaim, as he was proclaiming, God acts in history. Our God acts in history. His greatest work in history is the redemptive work of Christ. And it's easy, as if we're believers, to take that for granted. But God actually inserted himself in history when he sent his own son in the person of Christ. And, and we, we see just a few of those miracles as Jesus began to heal and to feed. Obviously, the greatest work is his atoning death on the cross. That he would redeem sinners. But the story is not over. Because then he takes Jesus and raises him from the dead. The kingdom starts. And the the, uh, disciples saw him ascend into heaven. Ten days later, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his church. And now the Holy Spirit continues to work. Jesus said, my father is always at work. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we are glad that you're here. This is a place to be. This is a place where you can come and get your questions answered. And I'm sure the pastors would love to meet you. But you, need to, you also need to know that God still works today. By the power of the Spirit, he changes hearts. And if you will cry out to know God through Jesus Christ, he will answer your prayer. And you'll know that you'll know that God acts in history. One of the problems for those of us who proclaim that we are followers of Christ is that we can often miss God acting. On the morning of January 12, 2007, the Washington Post hired Joshua Bell, a renowned violinist, to play in the Washington, D.C. metro. Three days before, he had filled Boston's Symphony Hall with sold-out crowds. On this day, he pulled out his $3.5 million Stradivarius and started playing. Of the 1,097 people that passed by, only seven stopped to listen. And only one person realized who he was. In the busyness of life, they had missed the genius. Are we so busy that we don't see the works of God right in our midst? Can we dazzle each other with how great God is? Do our children and others know how we were saved? 
Do our children and others know our answers to prayer? And do we remember them? We're going to get to that in a minute. But you know, every day is not miracle day. In fact, most days are monotony days. But God gives us the miracles to hang on through the monotony day. And in the Old Testament, they used objects to remind themselves of God's miracle days. Let's dazzle each other through our testimonies. If you're here and you're, you've, you've, God has just worked in you and you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know the Bible, I can't really say something. You know what? That is not true. God has worked miraculously in your life to save you. And your testimony is powerful and encourages the rest of us who may know the Bible a little better than you. But your testimony is an encouragement. We need to dazzle each other and remind ourselves with the works of God. Look on in verse 5 because he says, verse 5, he says, we're not only to uh, command us to tell the next generation the works of God, but it's also the words of God. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach our children. And he compares not telling them to actually hiding them. It's often called a testimony because the covenant was a witness between God and men, declaring what God expects of mankind and what God has promised to do. And so when God entered into a covenant, he gave his word. In fact, God's most precious gift besides his son is this book. And parents, you're the best spiritual teachers of your children and your grandchildren. The ministry here might only have them what, 50 hours a year? You have them over 3,000. No one has the ability to monitor and influence the spiritual life of your children like you do. And you say, I don't know enough. And you're right. You know what? You're right. But that's why God gives you little children, so you can stay one step ahead of them. (laughs) We are commanded to teach our children. And one of the best ways we can do that, just start, dads, With a family memory verse. Start, husbands and wives. Family memory verse of family devotions. Let me just stop before I go on here. There's an implied command. And if you're you're a young person or younger, if God is telling one generation to teach the other, there's an implied command that that generation will listen. That that generation will be teachable. That that generation will be hungry. That that generation will want to know. Last week, being privileged to speak to some of the officers in our military, at the very end, I remarked to my friend who's a colonel who has three, count them, three master's degrees. I said, I was so impressed that here people of all ages are giving me their attention. They're really hungry to learn. And you know what he said to me? He said, intentional teachability is a value of the military. You will not go far if you're not intentionally teachable. We want, to re- we want to be and model and raise young people who are intentionally teachable. Could you tell your dad's story? Uh, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Could you tell your father's testimony, how he came to the faith? My dad was a pastor, and I heard it all the time, not just from the pulpit, but from our daily life. I loved to hear my dad's testimony. I could tell you my dad's testimony. It resonated with my life throughout all of my years, and it's made a major influence on why I ended up in Christian ministry myself. I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps, and he guided me and shepherded me along that path. A great discipleship plan right there. It starts in the home. But here's my next set of questions for you. Do your children know your testimony? 
Do your grandchildren know your story? While I knew a lot about my dad, I don't know a lot at all about my grandfather, his father. He was always really quiet. He didn't want to talk about his life. He didn't want to talk about his past. I, I found out stories from uh, my great aunts and other people that were close to, to, close to him. Uh, but as far as my grandpa, he never wanted to talk about himself. Don't let that be you, especially when it comes to the things of God. Tell your story. If you're afraid of where to start, maybe you don't feel confident about sitting down and leading a devotional, family devotional, but just sit down and tell them your story, how you came to faith. I guarantee they want to hear your story because you're the person they look up to. They want to understand your history, your path, your your life, and not just how you came to faith, but what God has been doing every step of the way. It's one of the huge turning points in my relationship with our our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine. What brought me to work here at Songtime over 10 and a half years ago, when he asked me this question, what in your life is only explainable by God? That's not only a question that we need to share with them, but it's also an opportunity, a door that can be opened as they want to listen to us and they can share with us what God has been doing in their life. Let's all share the gospel with each other and let the wonders of what God has done be declared. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I hope that we've been able to encourage you today. A little bit of a challenge today as I present you some practical applications, but this is important. Share your testimony with somebody who is coming behind you. If we've been able to encourage you, I I hope that you'll be an encouragement to us, especially here for our mid-year fundraiser. We really need your help. We really need your prayers. I'm not just saying that. This isn't just one of those annual things we get to. This is a dire moment where we desperately need your support. In order to stay on the air, consider giving back to the Songtime Ministry. Write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. Or you can head over to our website at songtime.com, and you can always look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study as we're looking at how and, and what we can actually do to influence the generation that comes behind us. What is the most important goal you can have for a child? If eternity is real, and it is, then if I am discipling this new soul that God has given me, then the greatest goal is getting into heaven not necessarily getting into Harvard. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Psalm 85, 4 and 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation.